So as I've read through the book of John this year, there have been a few passages uh, that I just don't understand. And today's passage has been one of them. Um, should get you excited for today, right? <laughs> so I have read it, shaken my head, maybe read it a second time, and then shaken my head again. Uh, and then it was assigned as the passage that I would be preaching. Uh, and I knew my time to preach was approaching, and I've been willing the pace of this series to pick up uh, so we could make it to chapter 6 by this point. Because for some reason, I thought it would be easier to explain um, Jesus feeding 5,000 people from a kid's lunch, Jesus walking on water, or Jesus inviting people to eat his flesh than it would be to figure out this passage. Um, as I've studied, I've figured out it's not as confusing as it seems, and there's some, some deep truths for us here. Um, I want to share a quote from Presbyterian preacher J.C. Ryle talking about the passage we'll study today. It says, One thing only is certain. Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship, as we find in this discourse. To me, it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible. So just a few light topics to cover today. Uh, and perhaps I'm reading into his last line, but uh, you could possibly translate it, this is a really tough passage. So if you've ever felt confused by this section of scripture, you're in good company. Uh, let's pray and then we'll get into it. Jesus, I'm thankful to be here this morning with this church family. I'm thankful that your spirit is here with us. And as we worship you through reading and studying your word, would you please open our eyes to see the truths that you have written to us here. Amen. Uh, last week, Justin walked us through the first section of John 5, a story of Jesus healing a man who'd been unable to walk for 38 years. As a physician assistant, I noticed that Jesus didn't tap into the benefits of modern medicine that we so easily rely on as our God when our health fails. Jesus skipped past the MRIs, the nerve conduction tests, surgery, medication, assistive devices, years of therapy. He didn't even arrange for a bed in a rehab facility. Instead, he just spoke. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And it worked. Verse 9 tells us, at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now remember, this happened on the Sabbath, so the religious leaders got fired up when they see the man carrying his mat. And then they're, they're mad that Jesus would have the nerve to heal someone on the Sabbath. Never mind that Jesus just spoke and healed a man who hadn't been able to walk for nearly four decades. They're upset because Jesus did it on the wrong day. So the religious leaders confronted him about it and, said, and then Jesus said something that got him in even more trouble. So verse 17, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. The New Living Translation puts it this way, my father is always working and so am I. That is, this was why the religious leaders were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. We don't get to see their exact words, but we can see that what Jesus said in verse 17 caused shock and outrage and accusations from the religious leaders. They likely said the same thing that's recorded in Mark 11:28. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? In that situation, Jesus didn't answer their questions, but in this passage, he's going to lay it out for them and for us. John tells us the religious leader's concern was that Jesus was making himself equal with God. This statement from Jesus makes them change from being upset about breaking the Sabbath rules to wanting to kill him. 
In chapter 10, Jesus makes a similar claim and gets a similar response. He again calls God my father and says, I and the father are one, and the crowd plans to stone him in response. There are likely multiple reasons for their, this disdain for Jesus, but I want to point out two. First, Jesus had a habit of just breaking the religious leaders' rules that they had made. He stirred things up with provocative comments and just messed up their religious system in general. Second, they saw his claim to be God's son equal with the father as blasphemy, promoting idolatry, because in their mind, Jesus was merely a human man. So they're violently protecting the monotheism of Judaism because in their, their past experience, their ancestors lost their nation because they started following other gods. And this brings us to our focus for today. So in response to the criticism from the religious leaders, Jesus launches into a 90-second speech, verses 19 to 47 in our Bibles, uh, that's confusing with one read-through, but full of important things to talk about. It's a lot to cover in one week, so I'll cover verses 19 through 30, and next week Justin will cover the rest of chapter 5. So let's read verses 19 to 23. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. <clears throat> For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So let's go back to verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, this is a way to announce what I'm about to tell you is important. Pay attention. This is the truth. John's the only writer in the Bible who uses the word two times in a row. Um, and we'll see this again in verses 24 and 25. So here's the important truth from verse 19. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Jesus' point here is that being equal with God does not mean independence from his father. He's saying, I can do nothing on my own initiative. The rest of this verse through verse 23 is structured around four statements that start with for or because that support Jesus' statement from verse 19 that we just looked at. It's paraphrased like this by Bible scholar D.A. Carson. It is impossible for the son to take independent, self-determined action that would set him over or against the father as another god. For whatever the father does, the son does. The father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. As the father raises the dead and gives life, so also the son gives life. And the father has given all judgment to the son. So let's work through these line by line. Continuing in verse 19, For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus' statement gives a picture of a son being an apprentice of his father as he prepares to take over the family business. And this wouldn't make sense to the original audience, uh, because if your dad was a carpenter, then that meant you were most likely going to be a carpenter. You would be trained by your dad. You just didn't have a lot of other career opportunities. It was just passed down. So here's an example from my life. My dad did a lot of work on our cars growing up, and I enjoyed watching and helping. So my, my grandfather taught my dad how to work on cars. My dad taught me, and I'm trying to teach my kids some. Verse 20 has the second supporting statement. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. So that marveling at the end of the verse may be somebody's first step towards faith in Jesus. 
We see the bond between the Father and the Son is built on love. D.A. Carson states it this way, the love of the Father for the Son is displayed in continuous disclosure of all he does to the Son. And the love of the Son for the Father is displayed in the perfect obedience that issues in the cross. What about the greater works Jesus mentions? He's saying, you think making a lame man walk is a big deal? Just wait. You ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, pretty sure Jesus said ain't. They just didn't. <laughs> John didn't write it down. Uh, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So here's the greater things that Jesus was just talking about. The Greek word for dead is nekros. It can refer to either physical death or metaphorical death. In this verse, it seems to be referring to raising the physically dead to life. Only God can give life or raise people to life. God is the only being in the universe who is not dependent on another for life. In the Old Testament, we see several examples of God the Father giving life. He creates human life by breathing into Adam. He uses the prophet Elijah to raise the son of a widow in 1 Kings 17. He uses the prophet Elisha to raise a woman's only son in 2 Kings 4. And in 2 Kings 13, when a dead man was thrown into a grave, he fell on Elisha's bones and came back to life. In the book of John, Jesus has not yet raised anyone from the dead, but it's coming. When he makes this statement like, uh, that the Father, like the Father, the Son gives life, he's likely thinking ahead to when he will raise Lazarus to life in chapter 11, when he will rise from the dead himself, and when he will raise all people from the dead at the end of time, as we'll read about in a few verses. Verse 22, here's the final bullet point for Jesus' claim that he is God but not above the Father. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. This is clearly the claim that Jesus is God, because only God is allowed to judge. Uh, I'm told that if someone else were preaching this passage, there might have been a quote from Tupac here. Um, but I'm preaching today, so there will be no Tupac. Uh, we do need to take a minute to address attention here, because as I've read through John, I've noticed that it, there are times that it seems like Jesus is contradicting himself. So, for example, here in verse 22, and we'll see again in verses 27 and 30, Jesus is saying he is the judge. But a couple of chapters ago, in John 3:17, Jesus tells us that he didn't come into the world to condemn, the same word as judge in chapter 5, so he didn't come to condemn or judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So here's a couple other examples from the book of John. John 8:15, Jesus says, I judge no one. But in the next verse he says, Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In John 12, 47, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And in the next verse, he says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So what's going on here? Does Jesus judge or doesn't he? Is Jesus confused about his role? Or did John get things mixed up when he wrote it down? Uh, the answer to both those questions is no. Jesus was not confused. John didn't get it mixed up. I want to offer two things to consider here. First, the Greek word for judge in these passages is krino. In the original language, it can have a wide range of meaning. So, for example, in chapter 8, Jesus is saying, I didn't come for the purpose of condemning the world, but I do sort through the facts and rightly evaluate things and people in the world. Second, there seems to be a distinction between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. He didn't come to earth as a human being for the purpose of condemning or judging the world. He came to provide rescue to humankind, 
rescue from a final judgment that will occur when he returns for his second coming. So now in verse 23, we'll see why the Father gives Jesus the authority to judge. So that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them, sent him. Jesus is claiming that he is worthy of being worshipped as God. This is a prerogative that belongs only to God. This would have been blasphemy to the religious leaders. How can a mere man claim to be worthy of worship? If we dishonor Jesus, then we dishonor the Father because they are one. So to know what God the Father is like, we look to Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And in John 14.9, Jesus himself says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But the religious leaders, the religious professionals, missed it. They missed Jesus. Their Messiah was right in front of them, but they didn't see it. So by dishonoring Jesus, the religious leaders are dishonoring the Father. So Jesus has been accused of claiming to be equal with God. And do you see what he says in response? Over and over he's saying, you're right, I am God. In verse 19 he says he does the same work as God. Verse 20 says he and the Father are bonded by the deep commitment of love. In verse 21 Jesus says he can give life, something only God can do. In verse 22 Jesus says he has the authority to judge the world, something only God can do. In verse 23 Jesus says he should be worshipped, something only God deserves. And now we come to the part of the sermon where I was planning to quote C.S. Lewis, a quote from Mere Christianity, uh, the same C.S. Lewis quote that Justin used last week. Uh, so let's just take a moment to imagine that quote right here, <laughs> because it fits better here. Um, that you can go back and listen to his message if you want to hear it again, but the gist of the quote is this. Um, it doesn't make any sense to say Jesus was just a good moral teacher or anything other than God. Either Jesus is God the whole Christian faith is built on a lie, or he's insane. He doesn't leave other options open to us. Jesus is God. Let's read verses 24 to 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So here's that phrase, truly, truly again. In both of these verses, which should get our attention, the message paraphrases it this way. It's urgent that you listen carefully to this. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Sounds a lot like John 3.16, doesn't it? Remember back in verse 21, we talked about Jesus' ability to raise the physically dead to life. Here, the same Greek word for dead, nekros, is used, but is referring to the spiritually dead receiving life in Jesus. Those who are separated from God can now live life with him. So, how does someone pass from death to life? It's from hearing the words of Jesus. The word translated here is in verse 24 has two parts. It's hearing a voice, hearing words from a voice, and yielding obedience to that voice. So it's hearing and responding by believing that Jesus is who he has been telling us the all-powerful Son of God, and yielding our lives to him. Verse 20, uh, so one question. Did you notice that Jesus tells us when eternal life starts? Look at verse 24. He says, the one who believes in Jesus has eternal life. It's 
present tense. Verse 25 says, The time is now here when Jesus is raising the spiritually dead to life. So eternal life starts now. It's also coming, as we see in verse 25. So eternal life is both here now, but not yet fully revealed. So we live in this tension where we experience eternal life with Jesus, but still experience the pain and suffering that comes from living in a broken world. One day, that tension won't exist anymore. But for now, it does. So what does it mean for eternal life to start now? Here are some things that are true of someone who has accepted Christ and is now in Christ. You are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus. You are redeemed and forgiven of all your sins. You are adopted as God's child. You have direct access to God through Jesus Christ and can come to him with freedom and confidence. You are free from condemnation or judgment. You cannot be separated from the love of God. You are a citizen of heaven. You have received the Holy Spirit as your helper. You become God's temple, his dwelling place. So when you believe in Jesus, you have these benefits of eternal life with Jesus now, and then you spend the rest of your life living into this new identity of being in Christ. But it starts now. On to verse 26. Here's how those who are dead can live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So like we saw in verse 21, the Father has given Jesus life within himself. The New Living Translation calls this life-giving power. And it echoes what we learned about Jesus back at the beginning of John in 1.4, where it says, in him was life. Verse 27, and he, the Father, gives him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite name for himself. We've already seen it a few times in the book of John, so let's look and see where it comes from. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel is having a vision, a weird vision. It involves four disturbing creatures, three of which are made up of different animal components, and one of which has ten horns. One of the horns has human eyes and a mouth that it uses to, to declare how great it is and to terrorize God's followers. I said it was weird, right? Uh, So we're later told these beasts represent kingdoms or empires on the earth. Next, we see a courtroom scene in the Ancient of Days, a term for God the Father, takes his seat as the ruling judge. And the creature with the horn with a sassy mouth is killed. He destroys the creature that was bragging about ruling the world, and authority is removed from the other three creatures as well. And then in verse 13 and 14, we read this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, over 80 times in the Gospels. Every time he does, he is declaring that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel 7. He declares that he is the one to whom God the Father has given dominion, glory, and an everlasting kingdom so that all people will worship him. Sounds kind of like what Jesus was just telling us the Father gave him in chapter 5. Let's go back to John. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So here Jesus changes his focus from giving spiritual life here and now and he shifts to looking 
at the, to the end of the world as we know it. Jesus is saying there will be a final judgment. But first, the voice of Jesus will raise all of the physically dead to life. Then the Bible tells us we'll each give an account to Jesus, the judge, for everything we've done on earth. It'll all be laid bare. And then there will be a division between those who have chosen to yield to Jesus and those who have rejected his claim to be the Son of Man. At first glance, it appears in verse 29 that Jesus is making this distinction between the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment based on what we do or our works. Uh, that, this isn't the case. That would be a strong contrast to what John claims, not to mention the rest of the New Testament, that life with Jesus only comes through Jesus. It's not based on our actions. So commentators seem to agree that Jesus is talking about good works as evidence of true faith. D.A. Carson points out verse, or John 3.21, which says, Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God, or in God. Those who have done evil is referring to, referring to those who loved darkness instead of light and chose not to yield to Jesus. John 3.18-19 and 19 explains that if you choose not to follow Jesus, you are choosing judgment for yourself. Uh, that's a lot. So what do we do with this? Uh, before we get into the application, I want to suggest a couple of, of books that may be helpful to deepen your understanding of some of the concepts in this passage. Uh, the first one is this book, More Than a Carpenter, by Josh McDowell. It's a small book that explores the question of, is Jesus really God? And then the other book is called Christian Beliefs, 20 Basics Every Christian Should Know by Wayne Grudem. Uh, this is an accessible book that serves as a primer on Christian doctrine and has 20 short chapters, each focused on a different question, like what is the Trinity, who is Christ, and what is the final judgment? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of Christian head knowledge in this passage that we've looked at, um, but it's, that's not, if that's where we stop, then we've missed the point, because Jesus is our source of life, not our knowledge of the Bible. And so how do we work this into our lives? I want us to look at three foundational truths from this passage and three essential questions that naturally follow. Truth number one, Jesus is God. This is an essential belief in Christianity. If Jesus is just a good moral teacher or a prophet, then we aren't talking about the Christian faith. Jesus is God, but so is God the Father. We don't overtly see the Holy Spirit in this passage, but it, this passage is teaching us things about the Trinity, including... Jesus is God, but is also sent from God. There's an order to the relationship between the Father and the Son. We see the Father grants things to the Son. And there's perfect unity in the life of the Trinity. God, and the, God the Father and Jesus the Son are the same God, and they act in unison. So question number one, have I acknowledged and submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ in my life? Another way to ask this is, who or what has authority in my life that belongs to Jesus? Or where am I seeking my life apart from Jesus? Let me give some examples. Maybe you're disappointed in your marriage or your parenting, so you're trying to control the situation because it's just not what you expected. God might be asking you to let go of your expectations of marriage and parenting and let him have authority in those areas. Maybe you're finding that your sexuality or gender identity are not able to hold the weight you're putting on them. God may be asking you to surrender that to him. Maybe it's your expectation of what church should be like or how it should serve you. God may be asking you to let go and recognize that he has authority. It's his church, after all. 
Perhaps it's a worry that keeps you up at night, one that you don't have control over. God may be asking you to yield that worry to his authority. Let him worry about it. Whatever it is, as you identify those areas where you are resisting Jesus' authority, talk with him about it. Show it to him. And then confess it to a brother or sister in your community. As part of this reflection, I would encourage you to recognize and celebrate areas of your life that you have surrendered to Jesus already. Uh, God's love for you is unending. It doesn't change based on your behavior. Uh, but I think it delights God when we choose to yield to him and give him more of ourselves. So celebrate that. Uh, this could be a great opportunity for encouragement. You could share with your brothers or sisters how you have seen them yield to Christ and celebrate with him. Truth number two. Eternal life begins now. We've been given the option to choose eternal life over judgment. When you choose to yield yourself to Jesus, the hope of eternal life, life with Jesus, begins now. So question number two. If eternity begins now, how will I live in light of that? Maybe you could pick one or two of the truths I listed earlier to meditate on this week. Uh, here's a couple to consider. How about meditating on the fact that God says you are forgiven of all your sins? Forgiven canceled, nailed to the cross. Or maybe meditate on the truth that you are adopted as God's child. Adopted. That means you were chosen. God sought you out because he wants to live life with you. We see these truths, the ones I mentioned earlier, and many others throughout the New Testament. And uh, maybe consider reading through the first three chapters of Ephesians this week and look for the things that are true of you as a follower of Jesus. Truth number three. There will be a final judgment. This begs the question, which resurrection will you experience? The resurrection of life or the resurrection of judgment? Uh, I don't know about you, but I've said the word judgment more times in the sermon than I'm comfortable with. <laughs> um, on one hand, judgment, judgment makes us squirm because it reminds us that we are not the ultimate authority in the world. On the other hand, we crave justice through judgment. You've probably heard people say, don't judge me when a relatively trivial personal preference is slighted. And some of those same people may read a new story of someone who committed a heinous crime and say something like, I hope he burns in hell. Maybe you've recognized this dualism in yourself. I'm okay with judgment as long as it's aimed at someone else. We seem to know there's a line somewhere when it comes to judgment, but we don't know exactly where to draw the line. Usually, we want to draw the line somewhere that makes us feel good about ourselves because we're better than somebody else. But here's the problem. We don't get to draw the line. God does. And God draws the line at perfection. So the solution is, is admitting that we can't reach perfection. Instead of trying as hard as we can to be good enough, we look to Jesus and ask him to be our substitute. The Bible tells us that it was God's plan for Jesus to take the penalty for our wrongdoing. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness or perfection. Now we don't have to worry about being perfect to avoid judgment. We just have to acknowledge Jesus as our God and yield our lives to him. And then on the day of the final judgment, the righteousness of Jesus will be counted as ours. If you've never made this decision to yield to Jesus, then I would invite you to make today the day. Uh, for the follower of Jesus who has already made that decision, I want to remind you, you do not have to earn your way to God. The work was finished by Jesus on the cross. Now you respond with gratitude and enjoy life with him.
We're going to receive communion in a minute. Uh, We take communion here each week to remind ourselves of our Savior and to acknowledge him as Lord. And so maybe this week you take communion for the first time to acknowledge Jesus as your Lord for the first time. Maybe you take it for the thousandth time today to once again remind yourself Jesus is your Lord and your God. But before we get to the tables, we have one more verse in John 5 to look at, verse 30. It says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You can see how Jesus ties this portion of his response back to the beginning of the passage. He does nothing apart from the Father. But I want to focus on the last part. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This reminds me of when Jesus was in the garden praying just before he was arrested and ultimately put to death on the cross. We're told he was sorrowful to the point of death and prayed to his father saying, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, he was saying, father, I don't really want to be tortured to death. Remember, I haven't actually done anything wrong. I don't deserve what's going to happen to me. If there is another way to bring your children back to you, then please, Let's take that route. But, Father, if this is your will, for me to die for a world that doesn't really seem to want anything to do with me, then I'm in. I'll do it, because we're in this together. See, Jesus has all authority, including, we'll learn sometime next year in chapter 10, the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. He chose to use his authority for your good, for your benefit. He leveraged his authority so you could have life. We're going to end with a passage from Philippians 2 that talks about Jesus. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a servant and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor And gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, you are Lord, you are God. And as we come to the tables of communion today, I pray that we would just remember that you have ultimate authority that um, in you is life. And so I pray that we would just recognize that, that we would recognize you as our Lord, as our God. I pray this week you would help us to live into um, eternal life right now. Amen. Mm -hmm.